Okay, I have the privilege and opportunity to talk to you about hepatitis B management uh, because in many ways B is the forgotten disease in the world of HIV treatment and as you can see in hep C is uh, of emerging importance. Here are my disclosures. about various issues of hep B prevention and therapy and uh, screening a little bit more. We're gonna start with our first measurement case, the one before, and then we'll look at the very end. Uh, so this is a 46-year-old man with hep C infection is undergoing evaluation for hep C treatment. Initial evaluation reveals the following labs. ALT 56, AST 54, Billy 1.1, hemoglobin 13.7. His HIV is negative. His hep C, 5.6 million IU with a genotype 1A. His anti-HAV is negative. Anti-HBS is negative. HBSAG is negative. Anti-HBC total is negative. Which of the following is most correct? Hep A vaccination is indicated before treatment, treatment for hep C. Hep B vaccination is indicated before hep C treatment initiation. Both hep A and B is indicated after completion of treatment. Both A and B is indicated before completion of treatment. Or during and after HCV therapy, the patient should be treated with tenofovir or entecavir. So, if you have all of those choices straight, go ahead and vote. Okay, Looney Tunes. Okay, 65% of you picked four, and uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go forward. Here's another case. A 47-year-old man uh, who has sex with men has a history of HIV for 11, and a history of HIV for 11 years, develops an acute onset of jaundice, abdominal pain, nausea, and anorexia. He reports having one partner in a stable relationship. His HIV regimen was changed six months ago due to a rising creatinine, which was attributed to the use of tenofovir. Uh, his regimen um, was changed now to a Favarin's abacavir lamivudine regimen. His ALT is 847, his AST is 755, Billy's 11.7, creatinine's 1.47, he's HIV undetectable and his HLA B5701 is negative. Which of the following is the most likely explanation for this patient's disease process?
So you are concerned about chronic HPV flare, uh, though he is on an active, at least theoretically, active HPV agent. We'll talk about that some more too. These are the main things we're going to cover. You've already heard a little bit about uh, about epi of hep B, but it's important disease. Globally, two billion people have been exposed, 350 million with chronic HPV infection, uh, a majority of them not in the United States. And if we talk about the intersection of HBV and HIV, uh, we think that uh, there's probably four to eight million people worldwide living with both infections. And having these infections is important. We'll see that in the next few slides looking at some of the data. This is, uh, this is data from the MAX showing that uh, the, the risk of a liver-related mortality is significantly higher in the presence of HPV, HIV co-infection. We also saw that in the DAD study. Um, and more recently, we saw it in the NA Accord study. Um, and uh, interestingly, there was a particularly high risk in patients that had Hep B and Hep C together in NA Accord. Uh, you heard about the, the relationship of hep B to development of liver cancer. The classic study was done in Taiwan. It's called the REVEAL study. And it, it not only showed us that relationship, but it showed us how viral load of hep B was related to the development. And most importantly, and going to one of the questions that was asked by someone over here before, even down at very low levels, there was an increased risk of developing liver cancer. Clearly far less than the patients that were highly replicative, but uh, certainly did not return to, uh, to zero. So uh, while patients that become inactive tend to drop their titers, or many with treatment drop very low, we don't think the risk goes away. B virus is a hepatinovirus. Uh, it has very narrow host ranges. Uh, we do have, have models in other animals. We see hep B-like agents that cause liver cancer in woodchucks, in ducks, uh, in beachy ground sparrows, and in humans. And, uh, and sometimes uh, those animal models have proven to be very important in the screening of new drugs and evaluation of uh, interventions. The genome is fairly complex. It's a partially double-stranded DNA. It carries with it its own DNA polymerase, uh, uh, which has a reverse transcriptase function. And uh, it's important to notice this because, because if you have a gene change in one place uh, that, that could be important uh, in your treatment for the uh, hep B, treating the HPV, it could cross over to the other nucleic acid piece and actually uh, lead to a change with the development of that mutation that makes that person 
a vaccine escape that uh, that changes in the surface antigen uh, could could basically render the vaccine inactive. And there have been a number of cases in Southeast Asia of vaccine escape mutations described. We're going to review the life cycle. Um, so we first have binding and entry, and uh, and there's a very specific binding that was only recently discovered uh, using uh, uh, the sodium toracolate co-transporter. So, so actually, very interestingly, using a receptor that picks up bile acids and transports them into the hepatocyte, a key function of the hepatocyte is what's utilized by hepatitis B. Uh, when hep B enters the cell, it, it uncoats and uh, it releases its nucleic acid, and uh, that nucleic acid, which is in the form of a relaxed coiled DNA, is transported by an active transport mechanism into the nucleus, where it gets converted into a CCC DNA. Uh, this is the covalently closed circular DNA that uh, essentially is a mini chromosome. So it sits in the nucleus, there's the host chromosome, and then there is the CCC DNA. And it becomes the template for the transcription of mRNAs that go on to produce either a pregenomic RNA or various uh, other gene uh, proteins, which includes the pre-S and S, the surface antigen, um, and PS1, or X, which has transactivating function and is thought to be primarily involved with the development of liver cancer. Pregenomic uh, RNA goes on to code for hepatitis B E antigen and the polymerase and core proteins. E antigen, when that process is very active, is secreted and can be measured in the serum. And the uh, pregenomic RNA goes on with the polymerase to be packaged and reformed into a new capsid with the core proteins, and then is reverse transcribed at that stage and uh, then packaged into the surface antigen, and finally buds out of the cell and you have a new hepatitis B virion. But in addition, there is, in most patients, the secretion of excess subviral particles, which on an electron micrograph yield filaments and uh, little icosahedral structures that do not contain nucleic acid. And uh, this is what was classically discovered and called Australia antigen. So it was primarily that the Australia antigen was discovered by Blumberg for which he won the Nobel Prize because of this excess protein that, uh, that is present in the serum and which we use as the diagnostic criteria for finding a classic case of hep B. So you heard about stages a little while ago, uh, and this is another way of representing it, understanding that uh, patients can pass to any stage and then go back forward or go forward or go back at any time under the right conditions. So patients can pass from one stage to another. 
The other thing is when you first see a patient, you have to figure out where they are in this process. And, and so sometimes you might have a patient with a low ALT level but a high DNA, and those patients are in an immunotolerant phase where there's no injury going on in the liver because hep B replicates quite happily and does not cause liver injury until there's an immune reaction against it. So following infection, many patients actually pass through many years of an immune tolerant phase, particularly in vertically transmitted disease. And then at some point, their immune system wakes up and says, you know what, something doesn't look right here. And there's this ongoing battle of try and knock it down, ALTs go up, liver cells are destroyed, and uh, if the immune system gets the upper hand, we get to that chronic inactive carrier state, uh, which can be reactivated, as you heard, in various settings, including now with the treatment of hep C in the setting of a hep C HPV co-infection. You also heard some mention, and it's related to this, of what we call occult hep B. So these are the HBSAG negative hep B. They are often, but not always, anti-core IgG positive without anti-HBS. Uh, by definition, they're HPV DNA positive. Um, there's various reasons why this occurs. One is in association with surface antigen mutations. Uh, and they're quite significant in various settings in transplant because if you take a patient and transplant to an antibody-negative patient, a patient who has the liver of a patient who has a cult B, that patient will develop acute B. Uh, it's very common in HIV in some series in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, 60% or more of patients have a cult hep B. Um, and it does seem to be an independent predictor of development of liver cancer, which also goes to that question of, you know, how inactive do you have to be to not have to screen for hepatocellular carcinoma? The answer is, if you can only have uh, HPV DNA present at some low level and you still can get liver cancer, then it remains important. Okay. A few words about prevention. I'm going to start with uh, risk behavior modification. Overall, uh, this is not a highly effective strategy. Um, and in fact, in a vaccine study that was done in Amsterdam associated with teaching people how to reduce risk in the setting of HIV infection, there was actually a significant increase in risk encounters after the counseling was done. Um, so that people thought, oh, well, I got my vaccine, so everything's great now. Um, we'll talk some about vaccination prep and vertical uh, disease transmission prevention. Okay. So HPV vaccine efficacy in, an, in a fully immunocompetent person is very good. Standard three-shot series. Uh, and it's around 93 to 96% now in a wide, wide variety of studies from the U.S. and around the world. Um, what this slide shows you is that in HIV-positive patients, it's not so good, which is why it is not sufficient for you 
to think that if your patient has been vaccinated, everything is just great because uh, response rates in some series have been as low as 20%. So it's important to be aware that just because you went through the process doesn't mean your patient is protected from hepatitis B. Um, and the other group that, that is related to this that does not have HIV is the patient with hep C advanced liver disease also has very poor rates of vaccine responsiveness. So those patients are at risk as well. Um, now the first key question I asked you was the question about when do you vaccinate? And, and that has changed a little bit as we move to the all, all oral agents. There used to be concern that, that if you were going to treat a hep C positive patient for their hep C uh, using an interferon-based regimen, that those patients would actually have an increased risk of a vaccine-related reaction if you did it, it along with the use of an interferon as part of a treatment regimen. And so the answer used to be wait until after your treatment if you're gonna treat or start vaccinating, but you're, not, you're gonna be vaccinating for six months and that will delay your treatment. With the all oral agents, that is no longer an issue. There's no presumed immunologic effect in terms of an increased risk with vaccination. And so on the first time you identify the patient needs vaccination, you can begin the vaccination process you can continue that on the regular cycle through your period of hep C treatment. Now, the problem is in those patients that don't respond so well, and there's been a host of studies asking how can we do better. This study from France is probably the most important. Uh, it looked at standard dosing, the three-shot vaccine series with a standard dose versus what we think of as either the renal dose or a double dose of the standard vaccine. And what we see is that a four-dose series, which was given uh, with the additional dose at, at eight weeks, at two months into to, uh, the vaccination series, so it was zero, one month, two months, six months, uh, the best results were achieved in HIV-positive patients using that four dose, double dose, or 40 microgram, given intramuscularly with somewhat lower, though better than standard, results using the dermal injection. This looked at the uh, geometric mean titers of the three groups, and they were significantly higher in the patients that, uh, that uh, had the highest, or the, the patients did much better with the four-dose series, the double-dose given as the IM. People often ask about what about the CD4. In this study, CD4 was actually, fell out of the model and wasn't important, but detectable HIV RNA was important in the model. So if the patient has HIV, treating that HIV to undetectability is important. And more recently, uh, earlier this year, there was the publication of the follow-up of that study going out to 42 months from vaccination, and we see a persistent victory to the uh, four-dose, double-dose group, 
uh, in terms of the maintenance of, uh, of having protective titer. So I think we have sufficient data at this point to generally recommend this approach in our patients with HIV infection. And we're certainly using this as well in the patients with advanced liver disease from both hep C and other etiologies. Pre-exposure prophylaxis for hep B, does it exist? Well, um, this is data collected uh, on risk of developing hep B. And the answer was for patients that had an ART regimen that included either LAM or tenofovir or emtricitabine, that indeed there was a significantly lower risk over time in a, in a large cohort of developing uh, hepatitis B infection. So the presence is protective um, as PrEP. You heard about HIV PrEP this morning. Mother to infant transmission. So I think most of you know that the standard guidance is that uh, when a child is born to a mother who is uh, hep B positive, that the baby is given uh, both HBIG, hepatitis B immune globulin, as well as the first vaccination at the time of birth. But that is not as effective as was originally thought. And a number of series, particularly in Asia, have suggested failure rates as high as 15 to 18% with that approach. So the question has been raised about should we be treating pregnant mothers with active hep B infection? And uh, this was the first significant randomized trial that actually looked at that using tenofovir uh, starting at week 30 to 32, so beginning of the third trimester, uh, to women whose viral load was greater than 100,000 international units of hep B. And both by per protocol and intention to treat, there was a significant reduction in the risk to the children. And so uh, we are generally employing this now, and in fact, uh, right or wrong, in our practice, we have generalized to do this in, if HBV DNA is detectable in the mother, we recommend treatment to prevent transmission to the child. Okay, what about treatment? Well, if you read about treatment, you need to first think about what are the definitions of response. The traditional definition has been suppression of HBV DNA uh, to an undetectable level. But because the tests have changed over the years, if you go back a decade, you actually find different levels are used, which meant something that looked really good 10 years ago may not look as good now, even though the outcome measure result may be virtually the same. Um, many of those studies, typically especially for FDA licensure, included some form of seroconversion but there's three types of seroconversion. You could be just become convert if you were E antigen positive to E antigen negative. You could become E antigen negative and develop E antibody, anti-E. Uh, and the biggest question is how durable it is, not what happens when you stop therapy immediately, but what happens at some point down the road. 
because some regimens turned out not to be that durable even after these seroconversions occurred. Um, but where the field is moving now is to what we call functional cure. And functional cure is defined as hepatitis B surface antigen negative. It is not cure, and it's not cure because there remains in those patients, or at least a subset of those patients, both ccDNA and in some cases incorporated segments of the hep B virus that have actually managed to work their way into the host genome. There's a variety of agents that have been approved, and there are active agents that are not approved because they are generally used in the HIV setting, but fortuitously, the reverse transcriptase, though structurally different, has a similar catalytic binding site, which is why we have agents with dual activity. Now, when you see guidelines, you you need to know first that there are, are at least three major society guidelines in the world and at least five other non-society but, but used guidelines for Hep B. When you see that many guidelines, it means that there's still a lot of unanswered questions and no one knows the exact answer. The most recent guidelines to be published are the APOSL, the Asian Pacific Association for the Study of Liver Guidelines. They're similar, but they're not exactly the same as the US AASLD guidelines, uh, but they do take into account the most up-to-date information. So basically, first question, is the patient E antigen positive or E antigen negative? You then look at the hep B DNA viral load. You look at the ALT levels, and then you make decisions about treatment or evaluation of fibrosis or even need for liver biopsy. We still do biopsies in Bs now more than we do in Cs. Uh, if you're E antigen negative, the viral loads are lower and therefore the cutoffs for decisions to treat are lower. And if you have cirrhosis, then all bets are off and essentially all those patients are treated as they are in patients that have severe reactivations from any source. There's also DHHS guidelines for the setting of co-infection, uh, and it basically say that everyone should be tested. If you're tested surface antigen positive, you should have an HPV DNA. Uh, you should be using agents that have dual activity, and your regimen should contain things that, that allow you to suppress Hep B. If you can't use an agent like tenofovir safely, then you need an alternative agent, and entecavir is the recommended agent in that setting. Now, we do have TAF now. TAF is not yet approved for treatment of Hep B alone. Uh, actually, it's not approved for treatment of Hep B at all. But it will be shortly. Uh, the FDA has that under review at this time, and we have no reason, based on the data that's been presented, to think it won't be. Uh, Dr. Gallant showed you some data this morning on switches from tenofovir to TAF. 
if you didn't show you is this, that HB resuppression is also maintained in those patients so that we can comfortably do those switches in a co-infected patient and feel comfortable that uh, that's just fine. The mutations in hep B arise due to the low fidelity of the polymerase, which is quite high, and tend to occur in the YMDD motif. And there's a variety of mutations that can confer resistance to virtually all of the agents out there, although the frequency of that happening is quite different. Now, the second question that you had was related to, to what was happening in that patient, and indeed, that was a patient that had a lamivudine breakthrough because, because it is easy to overcome lamivudine. Previously, that patient had been on a tenofovir and tricitabine regimen, and uh, so patients do get this kind of breakthrough. If they have significant fibrosis, they're at high risk of developing decompensated liver disease. And this shows you the relative risk of developing HPV resistance with lamivudine. It's incredibly high. Uh, and it tells you why the current recommendations focus exclusively on the use of, of tenofovir and soon TAP, different form of tenofovir and entecavir, because the resistance rate is exceedingly low over long periods of time. The last couple of minutes, I'm going to finish up with talking about HBV targets. So I showed you the life cycle, and virtually any place in that cycle that you can interrupt something that's important to the virus leads to a potential target for changing what we do now. The approaches can be virologic or immunologic and most likely are going to end up to be some combination of those things. The virologic targets include entry and uncoding inhibition. Uh, there is a drug that's been under study called Mercudex-B that, that is a competitive inhibitor for the binding site, the sodium toricolate receptor. Um, you can inhibit DNA processing. You could inhibit or perhaps cleave the CCC DNA, and uh, people are very interested in, in various endonucleases and, and the Cas CRISPR system. Reverse transcription inhibition, that's what we do now, and clearly we're not doing it enough because our rates of actually having that conversion, as you heard, range from 5 to 15 percent, and so that is not good enough. There are also agents aimed at virion assembly inhibition. On the immunologic side, people are looking at therapeutic vaccines. Uh, we are actively enrolling in a therapeutic vaccine trial now, and I think there's one site here in New York that is doing that as well at Mount Sinai. Um, or immune stimulation of some sort uh, might also be very useful. And uh, one of the key areas in that that people are looking at is, is PD-1 or PD-L1 uh, blockade trying to reverse immune exhaustion, which occurs because of that excess surface antigen. 
So the hepatitis B virus surface antigen, all that excess protein isn't just there because the virus thinks, oh, well, why not, or it's a mistake. It's there for a reason. It, it developed in an evolutionary manner for some reason. And now we think that all that excess protein is contributing to a state of immune exhaustion where the immune system just goes, enough, I've seen enough surface antigen, just I'll let you be and you can keep doing what you want. So if we can reverse that, then there may be great opportunities to cure hep B. We need to develop better biomarkers. In Europe, quantitative HBSAG has become quite important. Uh, and I think we're going to begin to see that here in the U.S. in the not-too-distant future. Um, we already have some evidence that, uh, that using that might be a very good marker of a very early treatment response in terms of who's going to actually cure. Uh, people are doing work on HPV RNA and serum, on how can we measure CCC DNA, which is unbelievably hard to do because it sits in the liver and how to eliminate or how to measure the elimination of integrated HPV DNA. You heard from Dr. Monto about HCC, and he mentioned several groups that require surveillance. This just, this just lists them. Uh, but what I wanted to note specifically is this group. So there's a couple of, of expert groups, consensus groups in Europe that have noted that the risk of hepatocellular carcinoma in the setting of HIV appears to be higher than non-HIV infected patients. And the major societies, the three major liver societies, have not said anything specific at this point about patients with HIV, but there is growing interest in gathering additional data that would support perhaps even earlier and more frequent testing in patients with HBV, HIV co-infection. There is some evidence that tumors grow faster, which is a huge problem because even the six-month screening is based upon the, the rate of tumor growth in the average person. And if you grow faster, then you might outgrow the Milan criteria before you ever get to uh, the point of being considered for transplant. So my finishing thing is uh, vaccination is a critical element of prevention. Current methods are imperfect. Uh, think about uh, double dose, four dose uh, injections for hep B prevention. Our treatment goal is complete suppression of HPV viral replication, but that long-term suppression will rarely lead to a functional cure we need other modalities. There are multiple studies going on. I think we are right now where we were at with hep C. Imagine saying that, because we used to say that about hep C, about HIV. Uh, we're about 10 to 12 years back, and I think in the next decade, we'll see an emergence of totally changed uh, treatments and outcomes in hep B. And finally, don't ever, ever forget the HCC screening and surveillance in your HPV patients. Here was your original ARS case. Choices, and I hope you know the answer now. Most of you did get it before.
84%, and that is a huge increase. Thank you. Okay, I would be happy to entertain a few questions as uh, our panel comes up uh, for the last set of cases. So, any questions from the floor? I could wait for, here comes some uh, cards. Here's the first one. Would you treat a pregnant woman with an HBV viral load of 4,000 with normal ALT and HBSAG positive? I was going to ask you that too. Okay. So, so in that setting, we're not sure of what is the threshold of risk. In, in the one study, the one I showed you, they used 100,000. Other studies that have looked at this from more of an epidemiologic point of view have found or suggested a cutoff of someplace between 30 and 50,000 is associated with increased risk. So I would talk to the patient. Um, I, I think the risk of using a drug is very low. With a 4,000, I think your risk of transmission as long as you're still using HBIG and uh, vaccination is very low as well. And uh, I, I would discuss it with the woman and, and make a choice together. I wouldn't say no, but I wouldn't strongly encourage it. Okay. Uh, would you test Hep D in all HB patients, even if not treating them? That's a fantastic question. Uh, we don't do, do that very well. Uh, we have been accumulating data and we are literally writing a abstract right now because we looked in our EPIC database and we found that, uh, that only 14% of patients with, with active hep B infection were ever screened for hep D. But we found among those that were screened a 4% hep D positive rate, and that was higher than we expected to find. Generally, the CDC recommendations uh, for various types of screening of viral hepatitis say a population over 2% risk should be screened. So, you know, if those numbers hold as we look forward and we're in the Midwest, uh, I, I think, yes, we should be doing a lot more hep D screening. Um, Let's see, in patients who have received hep B vaccination and responded, do you monitor the HBSAB periodically to assure they maintained immunity? That's a fantastic question. So the official recommendation originally when vaccination became common from the CDC was, no, you have, you have a memory effect, you're protected for life. Though there was very little data that actually supported that uh, approach. The best data came out of the New York Blood Center that showed that a, a group of patients that were reinfected after the original Hep B trials uh, did
did zero convert when their titers fell below 10 milli international units per ml, but they didn't get sick, so they said, oh, I guess we don't need to do that. Then they began to see evidence of acute illness in renal dialysis patients, and the recommendation was that renal dialysis patients should be rechecked. Um, we recheck anyone that has ongoing risk. That is our practice. It is not supported specifically by any guideline, and we revaccinate when someone falls below 10 million international units per ml. We do that at one to two year intervals, though it's not written in stone. And actually, I'd love to hear the panel's comments on oh, that. Uh, that's a lot of testing. That's, that was my, my comment. It well, but it depends on, uh, you know, someone, all kids are being vaccinated, but not, you know, when they're 40 years old, not all of them have ongoing risk. So you have to sort of pick and choose who has risk. Uh, you know, healthcare workers ask that question all the time, and for those that have significant blood exposures, I think the answer is yeah. I have to say I got burned on this once with a HIV-positive patient who came to me on initial visit with a positive surface antibody, subsequently became more immunosuppressed, it was in the old days, um, and then developed acute hepatitis B, and looking back, his surface antibody had been many years ago, and now he had a surface antigen and a high HPV RNA, so, right. or DNA. So I'm, I'm rechecking every five to 10 years, uh, just kind of routinely. I'd like to see a show of hands among folks in the audience. How many of you have read, ready access to hepatitis B uh, surface antibody quantitation? You could easily get a lab, it'll be no problem. Because <coughs> I, uh, I think it is underused, and again, as we're talking all about hepatitis B reactivation uh, in the setting of uh, hep C therapy and wanting to know people's status. I think um, it, it's really great to be able to do more testing so we understand more who may lose their protection. Okay, well, you know, I have, you, you people are amazing with your questions because I have like 20 questions more here and that would be unfair to our panel so uh, some of these things may come up. I'll be happy to stick around afterwards and try and answer some of them. And uh, you could also solicit, well, Alex is gonna have to leave, so you might be stuck with me on the hepatology side, but these guys can also help answer those questions because we're gonna try and do some cases which are also gonna stimulate some additional discussion.